1: Hello and welcome to Heart Wisdom, Jack Hornfield's podcast here on Ram Dass' Be Here Now Network. I'm Ganesh Miller, here to welcome you to episode 210, Simplicity. The set and setting for this episode is September 29th, 1983, at the Insight Meditation Society, where Jack was starting a three-month meditation retreat. And in this episode... Jack explains how we can use the blissful wisdom of simplicity to liberate ourselves from what he calls the three-sided crystal of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. In line with the theme of the episode, I'm going to keep this one simple and drop you right into the episode after letting you know what Jack has coming up event-wise. Mid-November starts a new on-demand journey with Jack in interactive guided meditation. We've opened one of his courses for a live cohort where you can study with other students and have two live question and answer sessions with Jack. You can sign up for that at jackhornfield.com or with the link in the show notes. Then on November 4th, Jack is taking part in a day-long retreat online, a benefit for Spirit Rock entitled Loving Presence, Compassion, and a Joyful Heart. This is also featuring Trudy Goodman, so anything involving that Dharma duo is always amazing and heartwarming. Then on November 6th, The Power of Awareness starts back up. This is a seven-week training that Jack does with Devin Berry, Kanda Mason, and Tara Brock, and is one of the deeper trainings around mindfulness that you can find online or anywhere for that matter. November 20th marks Jack's next Dharma Talk for Spirit Rock. This is something that he offers monthly, and it is pay what you can, and it is truly the guru bead on the mala, For being a student of Jack. And something very special to announce, Jack does not do many in-person retreats anymore, but this January, he and Trudy, along with Lama Soltzram Alione, Dr. Dan Siegel, Soren Gordheimer, and many others, will be teaching a week-long retreat at Blue Spirit Costa Rica entitled Wisdom and Wellbeing. You can find out about all of this at jackhornfield.com on the events page. And if you want to sign up for the interactive guided meditation on demand live cohort, you can do so under the courses option. So I thank you as always for being part of this great sangha. And I hope you enjoy this episode of Heart Wisdom, episode 210, Simplicity. May you be well, may you be happy, may you help others through the authenticity of your own being. May your heart always be smiling. Namaste. Considering how
0: far people have traveled and how many of us there are already, there's, a, there's quite a strong feeling in this room and also, say, it's a kind of joy in the silence representing the beginning of the retreat for people in the, in the full sense of that. So we sit and we've begun our, our three-month odyssey. We start, as you can see, in the first meditations, working with the breath, with a kind of universal problem. And I was going to look into some of the sutras and begin with them, and I turned to the first sutra listed in the Book of Gradual Sayings. And the Buddha says in this one, sitting around with his monks, he said, monks, I know of not any other single thing so intractable as the uncultivated mind It's indeed intractable. No other such thing, single thing, is so tractable as the cultivated mind. I know of no or not any other single thing so conducive to loss. I know of not any other single thing that brings as much confusion or sorrow as an uncultivated mind. And similarly, on the other side, of no other thing that brings such bliss such understanding, such profit as a cultivated mind. What kind of initial guidance to give to speak to you in settling down here? There's a story that someone told me this year of a man who was a very devout, Spiritual person, and his practice was great faith and a great deal of faith in God. Happened that a great flood came to his house in the area where he lived. He climbed from the first floor to the second floor, and as the waters rose, out from the second floor onto the roof. A man rode by in a rowboat and said, "Friend, please get in. The flood waters are rising, and the." Uh, the man of great faith said, no, no, I believe in God, it will all be taken care of. So the rowboat rowed away. The floodwaters got higher. They got all the way up to his mouth. The rowboat comes back, get in my friend. Said, no, no, I have faith, I trust, I believe. So the rowboat goes away. The floodwaters get yet higher all the way up to his nose and a helicopter comes by lowers down the ladder, says, come on, come on up, we'll rescue you. The man says, no, no, I have faith, I believe. Helicopter goes away. The floodwaters rise higher and he drowns. So he goes to heaven, and after, after he gets settled in a little bit, you know how it takes a few days to get settled in, finally he gets his audience with the... Uh, with the main honcho there, he goes to see God. And he sits down and he says, you know, and he tells him the story, I believed, I had great faith and my whole life and all this happened and I just couldn't understand it. You know, I waited for your your help or your assistance and I had so much faith in you. And God said, gee, that's funny, he scratched his head too. He said, I sent you two rowboats and a helicopter. (laughs) Now, there's something in this story that relates to the beginning spirit of practice here, which is the spirit in the tradition of Vipassana and in the enlightenment of the Buddha of working in a very straightforward, very direct way. There is a traditional story told of a man who was a great teacher in India at the time of the Buddha, and had many disciples. But when he heard that there was a Buddha, a fully enlightened one, he knowing himself, even though he was a wise man, that he hadn't really attained liberation, he went off to see, to seek the Buddha, and he walked long, long distance across India, and finally came to him in a town where the Buddha was collecting his alms food. And uh, he asked the Buddha, when he found him, are you the Buddha? And he said, yes, And will you please give me your teachings? And the Buddha said, please wait, we'll go back to the monastery after I've collected food and I'll give you the teachings. But he'd walked so far and he'd come so far, he was quite insistent, please I must have them now. And the Buddha said, wait, and third time he asked. And so the Buddha had to give him teachings very succinctly and, uh, and simply in that moment in the street. And he said to him that the essence of the Dharma, see if you can understand this, is that in the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. And in the thought or experience with the mind, there is only the thought. As in all these kinds of stories. Of course, he was enlightened when he heard that. You mean there's nothing else. No I, no mind, nothing to grasp, no owner. Simply sights, sounds, smells, taste, the, the sense of, of sights and sounds, of physical sensations and mental events. No separateness, just a play of these elements. This was the teaching in a nutshell. In the seen, just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the tasted or smelled or touched, just those experiences. No rejection, no liking, no disliking. Just the play of these experiences. This is the end of practice, and he got enlightened from it, and it's the beginning of practice. In his case, it was quite a good thing he got enlightened for. A few moments later, a wild cow came down the street and gored him, and he died, but it was all right. He'd finished his, his training. In any case, for us, it's also the beginning of our practice. A directness and a simplicity with our world, our world of seeing, of hearing, of touching, of breathing, of sensing. It's a way, this practice, of bringing the mind and the heart and the body all together to, to unity. Normally our experience is that we're fragmented or split. You sit here for one day, and how often has the mind wandered? It's a good thing you didn't count probably in most cases. Some people can't even count that high. It, it's here for a few moments and it goes off. We walk somewhere and the mind is in Detroit or San Francisco or Auckland or, or London or San Francisco or Santa Cruz or some other place. We eat and thinking of something next. And the spirit of the practice is a, is a kind of unification of the mind with the body and the heart of bringing them all together into one. And in that unification or collectedness, then it becomes possible when the mind isn't wandering in fantasy of past and future to see directly and clearly. We undertake this first with the training using the breath, with a precise and careful noting of just how we experience the rising and falling or the in and out, not trying to change it, but feeling the exact sensations of coolness, the beginning and end of the breath, of the tingles, of the movement of the breath, being with experience directly. As we continue, we'll really work to cultivate an excruciatingly precise awareness, to be so aware, not in a painful way, but actually in an interesting way, of a movement, of the sound, of the breath passing in and out, that we begin to see the whole nature of our life process in a new way. If we start to look with this excruciatingly careful attention, noticing just what our experience is, then the very characteristics which make up all of life begin to reveal themselves. We start to see clearly that sight, or sound, or smell, or taste, or body and mental experience, all of them are in the process of constant change. From one instant to another, there's a a flow or a movement of experience with nothing being solid. All of it in change, like a waterfall if we pay careful, careful attention, we start to see that there is no place that we can find lasting satisfaction, that we can say, this will make me happy, this sound, this smell, this sight, this thought. Just because as we observe, each thing that we observe is in the process of change itself. We start to see the characteristic of selflessness, of no owner, of how all of these things arise and change according to conditions by themselves. So there's this beautiful crystal, three-sided crystal, of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness or insecurity in that things cannot provide lasting happiness, and of selflessness, three sides of the same crystal. And as our awareness becomes unified and careful, wherever we look, the truth of our life experience starts to show us the nature of this process. At first, it may be difficult. It is difficult. And it may also be be difficult to accept. But if we can begin to look at this and live with it, to live in harmony with it, to accept the movement of impermanence, the emptiness, the the non-self nature of things, there comes a tremendous kind of inner freedom. How to do this? What, What do we need in beginning to undertake this process of exploring the body and the heart and the mind, of looking to see its nature? There are certain kinds of simplicity that are of great help to people in beginning a retreat and undertaking a retreat as we are here. The first is simplicity of body. As we sit here the first day, there's a whole process of the bodily settling. There's a process of finding a comfortable posture and for the first day or two, or maybe even for the first week, They'll be experimenting with ways to sit and put our hands and feet, and finding a way that allows us to sit comfortably, and yet alert. Be kind and gentle with yourself with that process. You may need to switch your posture a few times, or sit on a bench occasionally, or a chair, then back on a cushion. Allowing the body to settle. It will hurt some for most people who haven't been sitting this many hours a day, even if you're an experienced and old yogi. Even so, to sit eight or nine hours a day requires settling in. We're also trying to concentrate using the body, being aware of the rising and falling or the in and out breath. This kind of concentration is aided by a relaxation in the body. It's not a process of tightening or trying to grasp or hold the breath, but rather this simplicity of body means to sit and try to allow, while being erect, the body to be relaxed or soft. Let the shoulders drop, let the eyes and face be soft, let the hands be soft and comfortable. As the body relaxes, the mind, too, begins to settle and becomes more collected. They're interrelated. In this process of settling, the simplicity of the body, there will appear different pains and knots, not only from the posture, but as well because of the accumulation that has happened in our daily life. We store tension in our shoulders or necks or backs or jaw, wherever it is. And as we sit, this accumulated tension begins to reveal itself. And so we may be sitting quite comfortably and our shoulders will hurt or our jaw will hurt. Not because we're doing anything, but because the place we've held it begins to open and soften and release. And in doing so, the the pain and the tension that's been unconscious becomes conscious. Allow this all to happen be gentle with your body, and yet see if you can learn to sit in a relatively still way, comfortably, somewhat relaxed, and yet alert. It's a kind of balance in which the traditional image is the tuning of the string of a lute or a guitar, in which we want to remain alert and attentive, and yet allow the physical body to be soft and not tense. So the first is a simplicity of body, letting it settle, letting it open. The second is a simplicity in our schedule. The instructions in the schedule was posted, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, a little time for eating and um, rest period. And the, the various rules for the retreat were discussed of not reading or writing or phone calls. If you have any question about anything that you might do, don't do it. Basically, don't do anything. Just sit and walk, rest, exercise, yoga room or whatever, then sit and walk and sit and walk. Keep it very, very simple and do the least extra that you can. In my own practice, and I know in the practice of many others, to have the opportunity for that simplicity is quite wonderful. And it it becomes a great aid in the quieting and settling down of the mind and the heart there have been a lot of temptations in the last 10 years of teaching to add things to the retreat. There's movement sessions, there's music, there's kinds of breathing that help open the the chest and the body, and there are all kinds of wonderful guided meditations, many things that we've learned or encountered that would fit in very well in these retreats. And as we've gone along, it has been a a practice to resist adding these things, even though they seem very good and wonderful, and to leave the retreats as utterly simple as possible. Basically, you come here and there's food and shelter and some instruction or support, and nothing else, just you and your little old mind. You know, that's it. It's like coming to sit for three months in front of a mirror and there's nothing to distract you and nothing you have to talk about and nothing else to do. The simplicity of schedule is to really understand how precious that is and honor it in your way of being here and in your practice. Let your life be simple. Let yourself slow down. It doesn't mean necessarily to creep around, but take your time. You know, be aware as you open a door, as you put on your shirt, or as you sit down in the dining room. Take your time and be mindful. Let your heart and your body and your mind all be together in each action that you do. For the most part, try to do one thing at a time so that you can give it your full attention. And of course, there are appropriate times to go a little faster, the lunch line or clean up or so forth, but mostly let yourself be simple and take, take a careful, slow, attentive way about things. When I think about my years in the forest monastery, one of the greatest joys that I had there was, was sweeping the paths. There were long paths through the forest in the monastery, and it was really a part of our meditation. Go out in the morning and get these long bamboo brooms just very slowly and gently sweep down the paths of the monastery. It was such a wonderful way of being present, of cultivating awareness. Now, when I speak of just doing one thing at a time or going slowly, it doesn't mean to be rigid about it either. There's a story which some of you have heard of Zen Master Sansanin, the Korean teacher, sitting... Um, in the morning for breakfast at the breakfast table in his Zen center, eating and reading the paper. And some students came up, they were quite upset. They said, you're a Zen teacher and you tell us eat when you eat and walk when you walk and just do one thing at a time. And here you're eating and reading the paper. What is this? You know, you tell us just just eat when you eat. And he looked up and smiled, he said, simple. When you eat and read, just eat and read. So it's not to be rigid about it, but to be where you are as fully as you can. So simplicity of body, allowing it to settle and relax and open even though there'll be pains and knots and things in these first days. Learning to sit quite still. Simplicity of the schedule, not doing extra things. Letting your life slow down a little bit and being fully with each thing you do. Simplicity of views. There's a story here somewhere. I think it's from the Sufi tradition. A man who had studied much in the schools of wisdom finally died and in the fullness of time found himself at the gates of eternity. An angel of light approached him and said, Go no further, O mortal, until you have proven to me Your wisdom and worthiness to enter into paradise. But the man answered, Just a minute now, you angel. First of all, can you prove to me that this is a real heaven and not just the wishful fantasy of my disordered mind undergoing death? Before the angel could reply, a voice from inside the gates shouted, Let him in, he's one of us. Simplicity of views means this spirit not of what you're going to get or what you think is supposed to happen or what happened in your two-week retreat before your weekend or your three-month retreat or what you've read in some Buddhist book, but a, a letting go of spiritual ideals and expectations and a willingness just to experience what is here with the breath, with the body sensations, with the heart, with the feelings, the thought, the mind. That is the Dharma. There's, a, there's an anecdote in the Zen tradition of two great masters giving a talk, one a great Chinese scholar and the other a Chinese Zen master. And the scholar began to speak about things he'd read and the texts and what the Buddha said. And Then they asked the Zen master and the Zen master said, well, I want to hear the Dharma from the scholar first. And the scholar said, but I've been teaching you the Dharma. And the Zen master said, I want to hear the Dharma. And the scholar didn't understand, and he started to to, uh, recite another sutra. And the Zen master reached over and gave him a big pinch. And the scholar yelled out, ouch! And the Zen master said, thank you, that's your Dharma. That's the Dharma. The Dharma is the knee pain. The Dharma is the sound, the Dharma is the wandering mind, the Dharma is the the subtle changes between one breath and the next. Simplicity of views means to discover the Dharma here and now, not through some expectation or ideal. If you want to know about enlightenment, we'll talk about that a little during this retreat, kind of the lollipop or something. It's here, it's right now. It's not something you create if you work hard enough or if you earn enough good grades in meditation that you don't get enlightenment as a kind of graduation present. It's it's actually here in this moment, in every moment. It's not something that we create, but it's rather discovered or seen through the process of awakening, of seeing clearly the nature of the world. So you don't need to plan for it or figure it out in meditation. Your awakening, your insight, your understanding will come through direct attention to the breath, to the body, to feelings. A simplicity of views, of being with things as they are. And here is where things will reveal The truth, the nature of themselves. Simplicity of body, settling down, simplicity of the schedule in our life here. And that also includes simplicity in eating and sleeping, to eat moderately, to sleep moderately, not to eat too much, nor to eat too little, not to sleep too much, nor to sleep too little. Body, schedule, of views and expectations, of simplicity. And lastly, a simplicity of the heart. Aldous Huxley on his deathbed said that all of the spiritual learning he'd done from various teachers and gurus and studies and so forth, he said as he was dying, I've discovered that it really comes down to only one thing, learning to be kinder, kinder to oneself, kinder to the world, to all beings. As we sit here over this time and our body opens up, which it will, and our feelings and emotions and our mind and our heart open, many of us also discover that we're wounded. I mean, life does that to us and that we we have pain from the past, from things we know, perhaps even from things that we don't understand there's a kind of healing process that takes place through the cultivation of awareness. And what it requires is a simplicity. You don't need to figure it out or analyze, but rather a simplicity and a kindness. And my favorite example, which to me is especially touching to read again, I must have read it 200 times in the last years, is about the death of Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, because I was there teaching in uh, San Francisco Zen Center this year and went to their beautiful Tasahara Monastery. And some people I met there told me about what it was like when he died. And there's this exquisite gravestone, which is a, just a giant boulder of granite and marble with all these different veins of colored colored rock of different kinds running through it. And when he was dying, he went down to the river in Tassahara and picked out this stone. He said, this is what I would like at my gravesite. And two of his closest disciples rigged up a kind of a pulley and a rope and moved, carried this giant boulder by hand, these two, all the way up the side of this mountain to put it in the place where Suzuki Roshi rests as a kind of tribute to what he had done for them as an expression of their dharma, of in that very simple and earthy direct way to represent their love for him. He gathered his students together as he was dying of cancer. And he said, if when I die, the moment I'm dying, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. That's suffering, Buddha. No confusion in it. Maybe everyone will struggle because of the physical agony or the spiritual agony too, but that is all right. That's not a problem. We should be very grateful to have a limited body like mine or like yours. If you had a limitless life, it would be a real problem for you. If when I die, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. That's just suffering, Buddha. There's happy Buddha and sad Buddha and pain Buddha and joyful Buddha and understanding Buddha and confused Buddha. And all of it is learning to be with our direct experience without fear, without resistance, to see it clearly. This is is an expression of the simplicity of the heart, of the opening of the heart to all the things that come up, that which is easy and loving and beautiful and that which is wounded, or difficult, or painful. In the Metta Sutra, the Sutra on loving kindness, the Buddha says, any single person who wishes to attain to loving kindness and to the highest states of liberation should live simply, be straightforward, upright, and easily supported. This will bring harmony, or uniformity between their inner and outer life and that loving-kindness and liberation will follow. I want to close tonight by reading you a end story, which again I've used many times, but it seems appropriate in the beginning of a retreat. And then to make a few announcements. A young man There's an exam at the end of this, so please listen carefully. A young man who had a bitter disappointment in life went to a remote monastery and said to the abbot, I'm disillusioned with life and wish to attain enlightenment and be freed from all these sufferings. But I have no capacity for sticking long at anything. I could never do long years of meditation and study and austerity. I should relapse and be drawn back to the world again, painful though I know it to be. Is there any short way for people like me? There is, said the abbot, if you are really determined. Tell me, what have you studied, what have you concentrated on most in your life? Why nothing really, he said. We were rich and I didn't have to work. I suppose the thing I was really interested in was chess. I spent most of my time at that. The abbot thought for a moment and then said to his attendant, call such and such a monk. Tell him to bring a chessboard in pieces. The monk came with the board and the abbot set set up the men. He sent for a sword and showed it to the two. O monk, he said, you have vowed obedience to me as your abbot and now I require it of you. You will play a game of chess with this youth. And if you lose, I shall cut off your head with the sword. But I promise that you will be reborn in paradise. If you win, I'll cut off the head of this young man. Chess is the only thing he ever tried hard at. And if he loses, he deserves to lose his head as well. They couldn't believe it when they looked at the abbot, for they saw that he meant it he would actually cut off the head of the loser. They began to play. With the opening moves, the youth felt sweat trickling down his whole body as he played for his life. The chessboard became the whole world. He was entirely concentrated on it. At first, he had somewhat the worst of it, but then the older monk made an inferior move and he seized his position to, and chance to launch a strong attack. As his opponent's position crumbled, he looked covertly at him, and he saw in the monk a face of intelligence and sincerity worn with years of austerity and effort in practice. He thought of his own worthless life, and a wave of compassion came over him. He deliberately made a blunder and then another, ruining his position and leaving himself defenseless. The abbot suddenly leapt forward and upset the chessboard. The two contestants sat without moving. There is no winner and no loser, said the abbot. There is no head to fall here. Only two things are required And he turned to the young man. Complete concentration and compassion. You have today learned them both. You were completely concentrated on the game. But then in that concentration, you could feel compassion and even sacrifice your life for it. Now stay here for a few months and pursue the training in this spirit. And your enlightenment is certain. And as in all good Zen stories, he did and was. So for you also, stay here for only a few months and pursue your training in this spirit, concentration and compassion. And your understanding is certain. said, the clouds have drifted away and the weather is clear again. If your heart is pure, then all things in your world are pure. Abandon yourself, abandon this fleeting world, then the moon and flowers will guide you along the way. So I hope that this first retreat, this first week of the retreat, is one in which you are able to settle down in body and in spirit, in mind. There's now 45 minutes for walking period, and we'll sit again uh, at 8.30. Thank you.